Ezra 7, verses 1 through 10. Now after this, in the reign of Artaxerxes, king of Persia, Ezra, the son of Sariah, son of Azariah, son of Hilkiah, son of Shalom, son of Zadok, son of Ahitub, son of Amariah, son of Azariah, son of Mariath, son of Zerhiah, son of Uzai, son of Bukai, son of Abishua, son of Phinehas, son of Eleazar, son of Aaron, the chief priest. This Ezra went up from Babylonia. He was a scribe skilled in the law of Moses that the Lord, the God of Israel, had given. And the king granted him all that he asked, for the hand of the Lord his God was on him. And there went up also to Jerusalem in the seventh year of Artaxerxes the king, some of the people of Israel and some of the priests and Levites, the singers and gatekeepers, and the temple servants. And Ezra came to Jerusalem in the fifth month, which was in the seventh year of the king. For on the first day of the first month, he began to go up from Babylonia. And on the first day of the fifth month, he came to Jerusalem. For the good hand of his God was on him. For Ezra had set his heart to study the law of the Lord and to do it and to teach his statutes and rules in Israel. This is the word of the Lord. Please be seated. Thank you, Elise. Um, that is the reason it's really hard to get readers on Sunday. Those are the passages that uh, are nightmares. I am really glad I didn't have to read that, actually. Um, welcome to church this morning. It's good to be back with you. Um, we're in the middle of this, this study. We've titled it uh, Reliving the Glory Days. It, we're covering the books of Ezra and Nehemiah. They are kind of in the centerpiece of your Bibles. They, they really recount the stories of Babylonian exiles that returned to Jerusalem to rebuild their entire way of life, their communities, their temple, and their, their city. Um, the stories capture a nostalgia that I think is oftentimes deeply ingrained in us when we try to kind of relive days gone by. Um, this year's the 40th uh, year since we graduated from high school. And so I have guys, that, friends that have called and asked if we're going to go and attend. Uh, I've always had a hard time with people that just can't turn loose of the past. Um, these, the stories recounted in these two books are really interesting because they can't do it. They do everything they can to go back and reconstruct the lives that they had before Israel was cast into exile. And it proves to be too elusive. Instead, God shows them that they have to, to look forward to something else. And what they actually do create falls woefully short of what they had before, but it begins to anticipate something that would be much more glorious in the future. And I think that that pertains to the church today in a very interesting way because we're called to connect our lives to something that's much bigger than the past years of the United States or certainly of Israel. And the fact that we are called to connect our day-to-day -day lives to the kingdom of heaven. And so throughout this series, what we're trying to do is to show you how the lives of these exiles going back give you some idea or indication of how you 
can do that, how you can have meaning in your day-to-day -day lives. Um, what's interesting, when you begin to really kind of break this down, you begin to see that, that, that God was working through the lives of these exiles in, in a way that showed their stories in a way that connects deeply with who we are and how we live, I think, every week. Um, today we're looking at the examination of the book of Ezra. We're in that centerpiece of Ezra, and we're looking at chapters 7 and 8. And here you come to Return 2.0. For the second time, there is a group of, of the Jews that are sent from Babylonia back to Israel. And so in the second wave, you meet the, the character who's known as Ezra. He is a highly skilled priest who is the one that would lead this group of people back, uh, the second wave back to Israel. Um, the types of the stories that, we, that we're going to look at today, I think they stir us up a lot. Um, I think for a number of reasons, and I, I want to connect this to an experience that probably most of us have, have been through one time or another in our lives. Um, I, I, I want you to think to a time where you actually did something that surprised you. You undertook a task, you undertook some sort of a journey in which you never thought you would. It almost like was compulsion. It came over you and you, you signed up to do it. It was a team at work and you volunteered. Maybe it was a project at school. And suddenly you found yourself at the very center of it because that's what this story is about. And I think it begs the question, what causes a person to believe that he or she is the one to do that? Or perhaps even a better question is, why would someone risk everything that they have, a perfectly good and normal life, and step out of that to risk everything to do something truly extraordinary? You see, the fact of the matter is, there's going to be some of us that I think can relate to that deeply, and then there's some of us that wish we could. We wish that we actually would get to a point that we could do that. Um, this week I had a really kind of a, a strange, kind of, it was, a, it was a bit of a sad experience. I have a, a friend of mine that actually went through a, a, a sexual reassignment surgery. Um, I met him uh, back in the late 1980s and we worked together in it. It was a terrible job that we worked together at and he was a mechanical genius. He was a Vietnam vet. And a few years ago he re reconnected with me and he said he was in the process of getting going through this sex, sexual reassignment surgery. And our friendship has always been really deep through the years. And I hadn't heard from him for several months. And when he actually came through Denver, he, he had converted to Christianity and he shared a story with me. And I remember we were sitting in our, my home and he, he sat down and he said, I'm gonna tell you my entire story. He said, do you wanna record this? And I said, no. I said, I have a pretty good memory. He said, I figured you did. And, and three hours later, I'm thinking, man, I wish I would have recorded this. And he, I remember he told me, he said, if I would have reconnected with you uh, before I started, he, he said, I, I never would have done this. And so this week, I had one of the, uh, one of the sessions in my office downtown. It was late. And so I was just out walking at 16th and Wine Coop, and I... 
I just dialed his number and I couldn't get a hold of him and I called his home phone and there was a woman that he had lived with for about 40 years that they were just like, she's a pretty mean person. Um, I don't mind saying that. Um, but she just told me he was gone. He died and that, uh, that was a moment that kind of re recalibrated things for me. And the reason I bring that up is there's things that can happen to us that cause us to step back and it kind of breaks you out of your day-to-day -day life. It causes kind of a new perspective to come into things and it's, it's in the midst of that that you're thinking, why didn't I do more? Why didn't I, under, why didn't I ever undertake a a marathon. Why didn't I ever do an Ironman? Why didn't I ever ride my bicycle over the triple bypass or something like that? It, it, it's then that you're, you kind of lament the fact that you sat back and watched. You just let things slip through your fingers and before you knew it you were too old, you were too fat, you were too poor, whatever. And you just like, kind of let it slip away. The story that you're looking at today is a person who didn't let it slip away. It's a person who actually said, I, I think I'm the one that's supposed to do this. And so I, I think that this should be a stirring kind of reminder that would cause us to kind of put some of this in perspective. Now, when it comes to the case of Ezra, I think there were three things that really caused him to believe I'm, I'm the one. I'm the person that's supposed to engage this. I'm the one that is supposed to put my life entirely at risk. I'm the one that needs to go in at the threat of the king's disapproval and ask him permission to do all of this. At some point, he had to own it. At some point, he signed up. Now, I think there were three things that actually caused him to do that. The first was who he was. He had this ancestral legacy that we're going to look at that kind of set him up for the whole thing. The second thing was... What he had done, he had a, a remarkable resume of, of qualifications that really would have caused you to believe, yeah, I think you're probably the one. But I think the most important one is the last one where he was committed to do some things that really qualified him to be that kind of a person. Now, I want to look at this first point, who Ezra was. The section begins with this really interesting clause in chapter 7, verse 1, where it says, now after this. Now, what's interesting is that that short clause bridges 57 years. Some people think it might have been early on into the 58th year since Zerubbabel had actually rededicated the temple. 57 years had gone by. And so you have this remarkable pause in the book where the first wave of exiles go back to Israel. They, they kind of rebuild the temple. You have Haggai and Zechariah that are kind of goading the people on saying, what are you doing? You're building your own houses and the temple's in ruins. And so they finally get it done and then 57 years go by before Ezra is really stirred to make a, make a difference, make a change. And so by then, the, the long and the eventful reign of Darius was over, and his son Xerxes, probably, this is where we're going to see, that Ahasuerus, the, of Esther, the, 
the king in the book of Esther, had also lived and died during that period of time. And his, uh, he had passed away, and the grandson of Darius, known generally as Artaxerxes uh, Logimanus, occupied Persia, the throne, and commissioned the second return uh, to Israel. And it was very common for Jewish, for Jewish historians to, to give a genealogy that didn't include every single person, and that's the case here. When it said that Ezra was the son of Zariah, um, Zariah had, has actually become, was his great-great-grandfather. And so two other generations had passed. Now, what's the interesting piece about that is that Zariah was was actually the last high priest in the temple before the exile. Before Babylon had, Nebuchadnezzar had sacked the city and burned the temple and deported everyone, he was the last high priest. And so there's the legacy that would have caused Ezra to say, well, maybe I can go, go back and make this right. For those of you that understand the, the history of Israel, particularly as recounted in the book of Jeremiah, Israel was in a terrible condition spiritually. They refused to listen to any of the prophets, the major prophets, Ezekiel and Jeremiah that had gone there, and even Isaiah before that. They were telling everybody what was happening, but they couldn't pull it back. And so for Ezra, it was like, okay, I might be able to go back and get this back on track. And so who he was was a huge part that would have caused him to say, maybe it's me. Maybe I'm the one that needs to go back. Now, the second thing that we see in these, this first introductory set of verses in, in chapter 7 is what Ezra had actually done. This would be like his resume today. Um, the first six, in verse 6 and verse 9, they record a statement that I think is the most distinctive element of everything that we're going to talk about today. If you, if you knew Ezra, this would have stood out and jumped off the page at you as well that it said that the hand of the Lord was on him. Now, in, a total, in total, there are five separate statements in the book of Ezra that talk about the hand of the Lord being on Ezra. Now, what's really interesting, none of those statements are really explicit. We don't know exactly what that was like, but I want you to imagine for a moment a person that you're around, and every time you're around her or every time you're around him, there's something unusual about her. There's something unusual about him. There's something so distinctive that it, 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 it just kind of communicates to you that they're not normal, that they're not just a simple human being. And even though they still, my dad used to always use the phrase, put their pants on one leg at a time, there's something unusual about that. So in all of these occasions, there's five separate statements five different times that it says in the book of Ezra that the hand of the Lord was upon him. And even though we don't know exactly what that means, I think we would have known what it meant if you would have known him. Now, beyond that, in verses 6 to 9, those verses also describe another way that I think Ezra would have known that he was the one. He, he was the one to lead Israel back to Jerusalem. Um, I think there's two things in particular that kind of prepared him for the task. And both of them would have been distinctive if you would have known him, if he was your friend, if he was your, 
your, your classmate, if he worked alongside of you, you would have known that he was an unusual person. The first, the first one causes us to understand that he really knew how to listen to God. And it says in verse 6 that he was a scribe skilled in the law of Moses, which it presupposes that Ezra had certain disciplines in his life that would have caused him to really know his Bible. He knew not only what the Bible said, but he also knew how it practically applied in life. And so in your everyday conversations, it would have been normal for him to be able to say, well, you, you know, God's word kind of says something like that. He would have been able to speak into situations that might have taken you by surprise, that he was really skilled when it came to that. Now, when it uses that reference, the law of the Lord, I think it, the law of Moses, which the Lord had given, um, had given to Israel, it, it kind of talks about a duality. Because you see, the Jews knew that Moses was the kind of the vehicle by which God's word had been communicated to Israel, but they knew it came from God. And so it had a human element to it, but it was really divine. There was authority in it, in other words. And, and so Ezra would have been this type of person that had this capacity to, to show you what the Bible actually had to say about things in a way that I think would have been really unusual. The second thing that I think that we can see from this explanation of what he had done is that he had this uncanny capacity to talk to people. And we, we see that in not one but two different ways here is that, number one, when he goes into the king of Persia, not only does the king grant his request to go back, he, writes him, he basically writes him a blank check. He finances the whole thing. That is not a small thing. Now, I, I know some of you work in jobs where you do presentations and you're doing proposals uh, all the time. But this is like over the top. He goes in and he asks the king. It's just like in passing that this is recorded for us. He goes in and the king not only grants him the permission to go, he basically funds the whole entire project. Now, beyond that, there's no explanation, there's no indication in the text that the king required anyone to go with him. And that tells you not only did he know how to talk to the king, he knew how to talk to everyone else around him. Because everybody else volunteered to go. Anybody that went with him volunteered. So not only did he know how to listen to God, he knew how to talk to people. He knew how to make a compelling argument that this is what you should be doing. Now, I wonder how many of us are really like that. We live, I think, in a time, particularly in the United States, where the church is fading in its influence in our culture. It shouldn't be, but it is. And I think it's directly proportional to the fact that most of us don't know how to listen to God. We don't know how to talk to the other people. We don't know how, how many other people, maybe this is the question you need to ask yourself, how many people have undertaken a spiritual depth because of you? How many people have woken themselves up from some slumber spiritually and gotten reengaged because of you? You see, that's what's happening. And so Ezra, both who he was in this ancestral chart that would have said, dude, man, you know who your great-great-grandfather was? 
And his capacity to listen to God and to explain God's voice in the creation to everyday circumstances and to talk to people was off the charts. And that brings us to what I think is probably the most significant thing is what Ezra was committed to do. We see that in verse 10. So of these three characteristics that would have qualified Ezra to undertake this attempt in leading the exiles back to Judah, I tend to believe that this is the most important one, but I think it's the most important one for you too. In other words, there's probably some of you that don't have that kind of genealogy. You don't have that kind of ancestral heritage. Some of you don't even have the spiritual resume. But I think those two pale into comparison to what's explained in verse 10. What he was committed to do is the reason you would have followed him. Not because of who his great-great-grandfather was, not because of even some of those other dynamics, but what he was prepared to do was the reason that you would have said, sign me up, I'll go with you. Now, the clause in verse 10 where it says that Ezra set his heart is the most important clause because it's basically saying to the depth of his being, he committed himself without reservation. In other words, there was not another fiber of his being that could have been more committed and sold out to this task. When it says he set his heart, he's talking about it's capturing this orientation. It's the Hebrew word for lab, which is the term, the same, the cardia is the term in the Greek. But it's talking about the whole aspect of his being was set towards this task. Now, every once in a while, we'll see a, a movie of a person that inspires other people. But sometimes it's athletics, and sometimes it's... Uh, it might be a, a military film or something like that. It, but it, it almost always captures a character of a person that believes so much that it causes other people to believe more. There's something about it that's so, so inspiring that it's almost like you can't just sit back and watch it. And that's what I think is captured here. There's something about Ezra stepping up to do this that just captures the hearts of everyone that would go with him. No one was told to go. They all volunteered. Now, there was three things that I think were an aspect of that commitment. The first was his understanding of Scripture. The second is his application of Scripture to everyday life. And the third was the communication of the teaching of Scripture to those around him. He really was about God's voice. He wanted people to know it. And so this first, this first part, understanding Scripture, I think is the centerpiece of what Ezra was committed to doing. It was basically knowing his Bible. The, the term that is, that is recorded here for study refers to a, a very diligent search of something, but it carried with it this indirect or passive idea of reading something over and over again. And it should conjure into your mind cramming before a final exam. Where you, you know something, you've read through it, but you're not quite confident that you know it well enough. 
And so it carries with it this idea of just going over and over and over it again. And this is what's getting, I think, really at this. And the object of that, that continual review was what the Scripture says, the law of the Lord, which to the Jew just referred to the insight and the perception of reality that can come from knowing the Scripture. And Ezra was radically committed to knowing that. Now, I can tell you that in my experience as a pastor and working with thousands of Christians over the last 25 years, I can tell you that there is no other thing that you can do. If you're either a brand new Christian or you're a person that's just investigating Christianity or you're some person that is kind of just sat on the bench for 20 years with your faith, there's nothing that you can do that's going to change your life more than starting to read your Bible. I've told you that before, and I hope that that might be the last thing that I would ever tell you, because there's nothing like it. I've known people that have gone to conferences. I've known people that try to suck up to famous Christians. I know people that listen to Caleb music all the time, and none of that works, like reading your Bible. I've trained counselors that have got multiple degrees in, in psychology. They have multiple degrees in understanding how the human mind works but they're not very good until they start reading their Bibles. And the moment that they start reading their Bibles, something clicks. Something comes into focus that enables them to see and to perceive their own lives and the lives of those around them completely differently. There's something else I can tell you too, that the way you hear the Scripture is different than most of you think. I, I, I believe that the general perception of Christianity in our culture today is that it's, it's kind of mystical. It's not very intelligent. And I think, it, I think that, that perception is, is accurately being deduced by non-Christians today because so few Christians have this kind of conviction when it comes to hearing God's voice. But the way you actually hear it when you genuinely give your heart to the study of Scripture is very different than you think. It's not like you hear some audible voice. It's not like it's some chant or some, some weird kind of thing. It, it, it's like you can actually sense that God is speaking to you completely uniquely. Now, that's not as strange as it might sound because the way the Scripture speaks to you is very different if you're a man than if you're a woman. It's very different what it has to say to you if you're married or if you're single. It's very different what it has to say to you and the way it describes your life if you're a parent or if you're a child, if you're rich or if you're poor, if you own a company or you work for someone that does. You see, in the ultimate sense, the way God's word falls on you is completely unique from anyone that has ever lived before you and anyone that will ever live again. It falls on you because no one has had the parents you've had. No one has had the unique life that you've had. In the moment that you begin to see all of those aspects of your life, it very quickly, out of billions of people, makes you completely unique. And that's how it speaks to you. Now, there seems to be this penchant, or there seems to be this... this motive in the American church to somehow 
obviate our responsibility towards duty. For some reason, this concept of obligation or duty to God has fallen on hard times. But I'm telling you, when you begin to really commit yourself to reading the Bible, you begin to find out who I should be as a man, what kind of husband I should be, what a good father is from a bad one, what is a simple, decent human being looks like as opposed to a wicked one. And you cannot help but feel the obligation. You cannot help but feel the duty that you have as a human being before God. That's how you hear it. And that's the thing that he was most committed to. David wrote in Psalm 19, he recorded a stirring set of statements about the scripture. And this is what he wrote in Psalm 19 and verse 7 to 11. He said, the law of the Lord is perfect, reviving the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. The precepts of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. The commandment of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. The fear of the Lord is clean, enduring forever. The rules of the Lord are true and righteous altogether. More to be Desired are they than gold, even much fine gold. Sweeter also than honey and drippings of the honeycomb. Moreover, by them is your servant warned. In keeping, in keeping them, there's a great reward. There was a reason that David wrote that way. It wasn't that he was trying to throw off the voice of God. It wasn't that he was trying to get away with as much as he wanted as much as he possibly could. He wasn't trying to toe the line of his faith. He had thrown himself into this Bible. And so he, he was committed to knowing the Scripture. The second thing that we see that he was really committed to do is applying Scripture to life. The second thing Ezra was actually resolutely committed to doing was doing, was not just hearing. And I think this is where a lot of us go off the rails. We hear things that inspire us. We, we can get stirred in a moment and we're right to the brink of conviction, of change, of making some sort of a commitment or obligation or maybe even worse, we have. And so week after week it comes to communion and there, there's a moment of reflection, there's a moment of, an, of just a examination of your life over the past week and something comes and emerges out of your own heart and you commit to God that you're not going to do it and you immediately realize that you did the exact same thing the last week. You see, what he was most committed to doing was doing, not just hearing. And in that sense, he comes close to what James would say in James in James chapter 1 and verse 25, he says, The one who looks into the perfect law, the law of liberty, and perseveres, being no hearer who forgets, but a doer who acts, he will be blessed in his doing. And so not only was he committed to really understand what it was that the Scripture was saying, he was committed to applying it in every practical way he possibly could. 
And the third thing that he was committed to do was teaching other people how to do that. This idea that is used for teach in verse 10 had the idea of training as well as educating. Now what that tells me is that he would have been the type of of instructor, he would have been the type of friend that not only did he just harp on you in the sense that he told you something over and over again, he showed you. He actually said, this is the way this looks. This is the way this, this plays out. And in that sense, there was an example that emerged from his life. You couldn't have been around him very long. I, I actually think he would have been so conspicuously spiritual not in a weird way, but just so practical about it that either you would have bought into the way that he was or you would have had to get away from him. You couldn't have stood to be around him very long. That's how oriented his life was towards this. Now, again, this begins to resonate so deeply with what Paul would write to Titus in one of the the pastoral letters in Titus chapter 2 and verse 7. He said, show yourself in all respects to be a model of good works and in your teaching show integrity and dignity see paul was telling titus man make sure you know what it says but be really diligent to make sure your life is a model of what it is you're trying to teach now i think it's somewhat interesting to consider how the three things that made ezra the most prepared to undertake this leadership of Israel's return 2.0, knowing the scripture, diligently applying it to life, and teaching others to do the same, those three things address exactly what's wrong with the church today. The church is beset with ignorance. We've never been as illiterate when it comes to scripture as we are today. We've never been as hypocritical as we are today. What we say and what we do rarely lines up. And we've rarely been as indifferent towards others as we are today. The three things that set him up and prepared, just completely unique, set him aside as he's our guy and would have compelled us to say, I'll go with you. If you're going to go, I'll go. Those three things would improve the position of the church radically today. Those very three things. Now, it's somewhat ironic to me that the famous painter, Vincent van Gogh, the Dutch painter, He wrote a letter to his brother Theo. His brother Theo was the one that financially took care of him. And he wrote this letter just a few years before his tragic suicide at the age of 37. Now, the letter that Van Gogh wrote to Theo was recorded in a book that was recently released. And he's responding to Theo's description of some reckless, debauched artists that Theo had met in Paris. And listen to what Van Gogh wrote. He said, don't think that I look with contempt on, the, on people such as you describe because their life isn't founded on serious and well-considered principles. My view on this is as follows. The result must be an action, not an abstract idea. I, I think principles are good and worth the effort only when they develop into deeds. And I think it's good to reflect and try to be conscientious because that makes a person's will to work more resolute and turns the various actions into a whole. I think that P. 
people such as you describe would get more steadiness if they went about what they do more rationally. But otherwise, I much prefer them to people who make a great show of their principles without making the slightest effort to put them into practice or even giving that a thought. For the latter have no use for the finest of principles. And the former are precisely the people who, if they ever get round to living with willpower and reflection, will do something great. For the great doesn't happen through impulse alone and is the succession of little things that are brought together. As tortured as Van Gogh was, he totally understood the fact that you have to have action added to principle or it amounts to nothing. For all of you that profess to be Christians, I don't think that's very bad advice. It's the very thing that made Ezra worth following. Let me take a couple questions and we'll be done. How then can we read the Bible as absolute truth truth, if it is different from person to person? The absolute, the transcendent truth of Scripture does not change. The way it applies to our lives is unique. The way we hear it, the way it speaks to us. In other words, you can have a body of absolute truth, but the way it pertains to me as an individual is very unique. Not all of you are male, not all of you are married, not all of you are fathers or grandfathers. Very few of you have stood in a position of being a pastor, a counselor, a coach. You see, all of those things, when the light of Scripture shines on them, speak to me intensely as an individual. And so it doesn't change God's word towards femininity or singleness. It doesn't change God's word towards poverty because I'm not poor. But you see, it pertains to me intensely. And I think that is when we feel the conviction and the weight of Scripture. Not because it's different than anyone else, but because it pertains peculiarly to who we are as individuals. I hope that helps. That's the best I can do. Next question. In addition to opening and reading our Bibles more, what resources would you recommend for someone trying to, trying to go deeper, trying to deeper deepen their understanding and application of Scripture. There's very few things that I think can stir the human heart like preaching. Um, Martin Lloyd-Jones, before he died, he did a, a single sermon, actually. It was at... Um, they wrote a book, it's called Preachers and Preaching, and I used to have the old cassette tape that I used to listen to about once a year. And he, he talked about what happens when you sit under preaching 
There is a special way that the Spirit attends the preaching of God's Word, the way the Spirit presses it into the human heart. I, I don't know that you can get that from a podcast. I, 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 I know it's not the same when you read it. There's something in the event of preaching that God intended to move his people. And if you look through the history of the church, there's been nothing like it. There's been unbelievable books that have benefited the lives of millions of people, I suppose. But every known revival of the church has been grounded in solid preaching, not simply in podcasts, certainly not in Christian music. And so I think that there's something that you owe to yourself, is to find a source of preaching that will convict you. And I think there again we run into something else. I think the majority of the American church wants to feel good about itself instead of feeling the sharp barb of conviction, of change. We want to feel good about ourselves. We want people to, we want it to feel like a catharsis and, and we want it to affirm what, what it is that we've done and how well we stand with God. We want to be told about the love of God without any of the threatening of the scripture. And good preaching has a way of bringing you what Martin Lloyd-Jones called under the knife. It brings a certain conviction that I don't think it comes any other way. I, there was an old preacher that I used to listen to quite often. His name was Albert N. Martin. And I promise you, when I would listen to him, it would make my heart, my heart tremble. He was so, he was so powerful. And he didn't talk like preachers do today. He talked as if he believed what he told you. And I, I think a few, a, a few sermons under his preaching would have either driven you in or driven you out. It wouldn't have left you on the fence at all. So there's a lot that you can do. I think some of the old writers have captured I, a few books that come to mind that are re relatively easy to read. Arthur Pink's uh, book on the attributes of God, a little, little tiny book that describes the character of God would probably transform your whole view of Christianity. John Owen's uh, book that was, three treaties were combined into a book called Sin and Temptation would change your lives as well. So there's, there's several resources in that, but Besides your Bible, I think there's a few things like preaching that can stir your heart. Last question. No further. All right, let's pray, and Zach will come. We're going to take communion. If you're visiting with us today, you're welcome. We don't have closed communion, which means that if you're a Christian, we would encourage you to partake of, of communion with us. Uh, basically, this is a testimony where we're expecting God to, to minister to us. The broken bread that you're going to see on the table in the chalice of wine, it represents 
the broken body of Jesus and his blood that was shed for his people. And so if you're not a Christian, you shouldn't mislead us by, by doing it. But if you are, we encourage you to show that. Let's pray. Father, I would ask that uh, that I would ask kind of in a selfish way that what you did to me on Thursday morning when I learned of my friend's death and how it just instantaneously calibrated my life and put a perspective on it that made me want to be better and made me want to be a better man. I pray that you would do that. Not that each of us would lose a friend, but perhaps we might gain a fresh perspective of what these lives mean. Because I fear that far too many of us are sleepwalking. We, we live day to day, week to week. We give ourselves to jobs that we really don't like and we're not even really that good at because we collect a paycheck. And in the end of the day, we don't even ask ourselves, what does that say about the value that we perceive of our days and our weeks and our months and our years of our lives? And what we have in front of us today is a stirring example of a person that couldn't sit back any longer. He had to step up. He had to raise his hand. And I pray that you would do that. I pray that you would wake us up. I pray that you would turn us in to the type of people that change the world so that we might change this city. Help us in these things, we pray. We commit our time to you. In Jesus' name, amen. You can find more audio as well as study questions and sermon notes at l2church.com. If you have any comments or questions, feel free to shoot us a message through the contact form on our website. Thanks for listening.